0: Well, good morning, church. I wonder if I asked you the question this morning, what is the most valuable possession that you have today, what you would say? What is the most valuable possession that you have today? I asked Mary that question this week, and she very endearingly said, Stu, it's you, of course. (laughs) And I thought, what a lovely response, Mary. Then I reflected on being Mary's possession for a moment, and I wasn't quite so sure about that. But what is the most valuable possession that you have today? That's what I want to consider. That's what I want us to ponder today. I'm not sure if any of you have seen the TV show on Friday nights uh, called The Repair Shop. Do we watch TV any longer? For you for you under 50s, there's a TV show on Friday nights called The Repair Shop. And basically what it is, is they bring in an old broken down possession. Uh, it's it's fallen into disrepair, it's very precious to them, they bring it in and they ask these craftsmen at the repair shop and there's a number of different craftsmen, some who are very good at woodwork, some who are good at repairing clocks and some leather and on and on and they apply their skill and their gifts and they repair these precious belongings and part of the attraction of the repair shop, the story of course is when the owners come back after their broken possession uh, has been restored to its former glory they just look at it and wonder and often those possessions have a significant connection to a person who has long since dead and so the tears often flow I was reflecting this week I wonder I wonder what if we considered the church as being God's repair shop what if we considered God's church as being his repair shop What if God brought you here to be restored, to be refurbished into the sort of person that God created you to become? And gifted people uh, contribute to that repair. What is the most valuable possession to you today? Over the next four weeks, we're going to take a bit of a break from the series in the book of Acts, although the streamers this morning would... uh, not suggest that we are doing that but uh, we're going to take a bit of a break and over the next four weeks we're going to explore the theme of stewardship exploring how we are to take care of the precious things that God gives to us God gives to us and how we're going to give back to him so let's pause for prayer as we begin this journey this morning Father, we want to thank you and we are celebrating this morning because of your grace on our lives. And we want to acknowledge your good gifts to us. Your word reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father of lights. That's you, God. And so we're here to say thank you for the good gifts that you pour out into our lives. We pray, Lord, that as we journey through this short series, through your word and through your spirit, you would show us what it means to be good stewards of your good gifts. So help us on this journey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The concept of stewardship, of course, comes from the word steward. And in the Old Testament, the word steward is a person in charge of a household. And so in Genesis 43 and in Genesis 44, we find that Joseph had a steward, and he was in charge of all of Joseph's household. He was in charge of the belongings, he was in charge of administering that household and significantly Joseph Stewart was in charge of communicating on behalf of Joseph and you see that playing out in Genesis 43 and 44. Stewardship in the New Testament is the concept of taking care of God's resources in a way that brings glory back to God's. Now before we consider what that might look like We're going to take a look at Haggai, and we're doing that deliberately because in Haggai we see how easy it is for the people of God to get it wrong. So if you haven't opened your Bible and you are able to, turn with me now to Haggai chapter 1. I'm reading from verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little, you eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Now, in in putting on clothes and still feeling a bit cold is not necessarily a response of God's judgment. Let me just say that for a moment. But let's consider the context of Haggai. Now we can locate this text very accurately. In fact, we can locate this text as accurately as any verse uh, in the Old Testament. The 29th of August, 520 BC to be precise was when Haggai was writing this text. Now 16 years earlier, the people of God had returned from exile to Jerusalem and they had set about building, rebuilding the temple of God. The Samaritan opposition however had different ideas and they stopped the rebuilding of the temple we know significant amounts about the seasons because there's at least three books that describe what was happening on at this point Zechariah who was a contemporary of Haggai was also writing about this Ezra was writing about this time so we know a great deal about this period we know there was enthusiasm and eagerness to rebuild the temple We also know from Ezra's writing that there was much sadness about the scope of the second temple. It was so much smaller than the first temple, and so they were grieving the scope of the second temple. But here, significantly, we learn from Haggai that the focus of the people is now out of order with God's plans. Sixteen years on, their focus has shifted. Before we consider that shift in their focus, let's consider what the people were experiencing. Three things Haggai records. They were experiencing scarcity, they were experiencing poverty, and they were experiencing great disappointments. Scarcity, poverty, and disappointments. And the word of the Lord encourages the people, as he encourages us this morning, I believe, to think carefully about your ways. Haggai says that twice. Think carefully about your ways. You planted, but you harvested little. You're hungry. You're thirsty. Your clothes aren't adequate. Your wages aren't adequate. There is real scarcity. There is real poverty. And Haggai could have been writing into 2022, couldn't he? There were high expectations among the people, but it turned out to be little. Why did that unfold? Well, Haggai answers explicitly in verse 9. He said, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty. And here's the explanation. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Busy with your own house. I wonder if that rings an accord with you this morning could it possibly describe our life this morning now an important principle in faithfully interpreting any scripture is what's called cultural transposition of truth now that's a fancy way of saying work out first what this text meant for the early hearers for the first hearers before you apply that truth to yourself so let's consider what it meant for Haggai's time The Jews have returned home from exile. Seventy years after Jerusalem had been completely trashed by Nebuchadnezzar, two or three generations later, they return back to their homeland of Jerusalem and they start to rebuild the temple with enthusiasm. It begins with God's temple, the rebuilds of the nation of Jerusalem, but opposition stops it for 16 years And so we might sympathize with the families that set about building God's temple. There is opposition. And so they set about building their own homes, paneled homes, beautiful homes. But the word of God comes to Haggai. It's both a word of explanation and it's a word of judgment. Firstly, the judgment, there is poverty, there is scarcity, and there is disappointment. This is from the hand of God, Haggai explains But the explanation is that the people of God are prioritizing their own households over the house of God. The response is decisive. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. A fearful obedience to the word of God, the people. And Haggai is quite descriptive. He talks about the governor, the civic leaders. That's Zerubbabel. He talks about the high priest. That's the spiritual leaders. That's Joshua. And then he talks about the remnant of the people, the people of God. They begin in unison, working on the rebuilding of the house of God again. What actually Haggai states is, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, the Lord of hosts. And that name, the Lord Almighty, means the Lord of the heavenly armies, the Lord of hosts. They began to work on his temple led again. Right, let's try to transpose that truth to our, us today. Firstly, The accusation of putting our household before God so easily applies to us in the 21st century, doesn't it? The word was they were busy with their own house. They were busy with their own house. Busy paying bills, busy desperately trying to balance the budget, busy shifting kids here and there, busy worrying about their careers, and there never seems to be enough. There's never enough money, there's never enough time, there's never enough energy. And when we set about doing something for God, it seems to get blown away. Scarcity, poverty, and disappointment. To apply this word to us, we must, of course, view it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Haggai's time, the temple was the place of God's presence, more than just a sign it was the very place where God would meet his people the Samaritans knew that they knew that desperately that's why they didn't want to see this temple rebuilt and so they blocked it but this temple could never it could never house the Lord of hosts it could never house the Lord Almighty Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, and his subsequent pouring out of the Spirit, which we've been celebrating in recent weeks on Pentecost, was the sign that God was now going to dwell within his people, within the very souls of his people. The new temple of God was now his own people. And God's word for us today, as we busy ourselves with our own households, is that my household, my church, the bride of Christ, lies in ruins in 2022. What must we do? What must we do? Well, Haggai responds. Look at verse 13 and following. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord, to his people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. What an incredible response. The Lord is with us. I wanna circle back to that first question I asked you this morning. What's the most valuable possession that you have today? What's the most valuable possession that you have today? Clue for the under 30s, it's not your smartphone or the latest derivation of smartphones. Clue for the over 30s, it's not the roof over your heads. Men, it's not your job. Woman, it's not your family. Students, it's not even your exam results. To answer that question through God's eyes, what is the most valuable thing? Let's listen to Jesus. What would Jesus say to us in response to that question? Partway through his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the following, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. Seek first his presence, his power, and his very, very, very Important purpose and being in right relationship with him is righteousness. Seek these things first. Or well, when the teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him, What's the most important commandment? Jesus said, The most important one is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, Jesus said. I want to suggest to you this morning the most valuable thing that you or any human being can ever possess in this world is your relationship with God, our heavenly Father. It's your relationship with God. That's what matters. That's what's at the heart of the kingdom. This God, our Father in heaven, who calls us children, who yearns for us to come to him and know him in a personal living relationship. He loves you enough to send his own son to set you free from the guilt, the shame, and the sin. And he pours his spirit into your spirit so that you can enter into that right relationship. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are, John says. 1 John 3 verse one. We're not servants any longer. We're not employees. We're not guilty, but we are children in Christ by God's grace who can now enter into a personal relationship with the living God. The moment you come to the cross in faith, and acknowledge your need of a savior. God calls you his child. And in grace, he invites you into this covenant relationship, this living, breathing, life-giving relationship. And that's, that's at the heart of our faith. So the question is, if it's true, this relationship with God is the single most important thing in our life. How do we steward this relationship? What are we to do in response to this gift of God's grace. How will we take care of the most precious gift that we can have? Well, there are many answers and many expressions of faithful responses to God's love being poured into our hearts by his spirit. But let me describe four faith responses that shape the life of Hope Church, four faithful responses to bless and encourage you personally if we take them seriously. The four-hour worship, discipleship community and mission all of these are responses to God's grace poured out into our lives firstly worship worship is the giving of our heart to God and adoration praise and thanksgiving when you think about worship you probably think about what we're doing this morning as we come and sing praises as we sit under God's word and that's a vital important expression of our weekly worship but Worship begins in the home. Worship begins tomorrow morning when you wake up and you make yourself a cup of tea and you go to your prayer desk and you open up the word of God and you say, God, speak to me. Your servant is listening. That's where your worship begins. Every morning, Mary wakes me with the following line. She says, before we say anything else, she says, this is the day that the Lord has made. And I respond, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Unless it's Wednesday and Mary says, are you, doing, are you cleaning the toilet this morning, Stuart? And I say, yes, Mary, I'm cleaning the, the toilet as my act of worship, don't you worry. Oswald Chambers says the following, my worth to God in public is who I am in private. Your worth to God in public today is who you are in private. Is your life shaped by worship That's the first faithful response to the God of grace. Worship the creator of the universe who calls you his child. If you want to find out more about that in the life of Hope Church, then talk to me and talk to Richard. Secondly, discipleship. Christian discipleship is learning to follow Jesus in patient, persevering, obedient love. What does that look like? At Hope Church, I see discipleship at the heart of what we're doing. Dallas Willard wrote the book called The Greater Mission, and he describes how easily Christians neglect the call to discipleship, the call to following Jesus intentionally. And so our lives so easily look like the world around us. Discipleship, following Jesus in faithful, patient, persevering, obedient love is at the heart of what we do here at Hope Church. If you want to find out more about that, please talk to Tim or Sandy. Thirdly, community, to cultivate and nurture your relationship with God, you need people around you to encourage and support you in the love of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes the following. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. The world has many imitations of community, but only in the church will you find life-giving, spirit-filled, true community as God ordained it. If you know me, you'll know that the textbook I recommend outside of the book of Acts to develop community is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. I've just handed it over to one of my brothers this morning. Life Together. Bless yourself this week. It's 120 pages of gold on what it means to live in Christian community. So worship, discipleship, community. And finally, if we are worshiping God the Father, following the Son, and living in the fellowship of the Spirit, you will be stewarding your relationship with God. But there's one more step. There's one more step. And what is that step, Paul? That step is mission, to go and proclaim the good news. I want to finish with a story about a man who called, who was called Charles Colson, and then take us back to Haggai, back to God's words. Many of you won't have heard about the Watergate scandal, but 50 years ago yesterday, the American politics was rocked by the scandal of Watergate. Basically, the president and his men were, through corrupt practices, through the FBI and the CIA, rigging the next election. And Charles Colson was called the hatchet man of then President Richard Nixon. The Watergate scandal cost Nixon his presidency. He resigned in 1974. It meant the incarceration of seven men, including Charles Colson. Colson was described as the evil genius behind an evil administration. That's the sort of life that described Charles Colson. He was arrested. He was found guilty. But when he was on trial, he was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was born again. His life was radically turned around, 180 degrees. And when he went into prison, he started sharing this gospel, this profound transformation that had taken place in his life he set about devoting his life and mission and sharing the good news that he'd had and received he's written a number of books two key books to stand out and worth pursuing how now shall we live and born again he was someone who received a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and stewarded it faithful to the day he died let me turn back to Haggai as we conclude. In Haggai 2, we find the response as the people of God and repentance turn back to God. And in Haggai 2, we see God's response. This is what the Lord Almighty says In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Do you know that peace this morning? Do you know that peace in your heart, the peace that God is promising from his Word? I ask you the question again, what's the most precious gift that you possess today? The most precious gift is this life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God's promise to us is as we come to him in repentance and faith, he will meet with us. He will transform our lives and significantly, he will stir up your spirit with his spirit and he will grant you peace. Do you know that peace this morning? Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, we've gathered this morning, we've gathered this morning to give you thanks and praise for your grace upon our lives that you hold out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sit under your word this morning, as we hear your word, how easy it is for the people of God to busy themselves with their own household, we want to come back to you, Lord. We want to come back to you and busy ourselves with your plans, with your purposes, with your kingdom. We want to put our relationship with you first and center. And so we ask God by your spirit that you would stir up our spirit that you would stir up our faith, that we would think carefully about our ways as you invite us to this morning. We thank you for this precious gift that we can be in a right relationship with you, God, because of your grace, because of what you have done in Jesus. Lord, help us now to turn back to you in fear and trembling, to know what it means to be putting you first in all things in all of our lives pour out your spirit on your church, that your glory might be manifest in your church once more, that your presence might be manifest in your church once more, that we would know that precious gift of your peace. In your name and for your glory, we pray, Jesus. Amen.